0: The Late Morning Program with Namras Podcast. Hare Krishna, everyone. You're listening to the Late Morning Program with Namras Podcast. This is season two of the podcast. I've done 100 episodes. I am super honored today to join... Uh, I'm nervous speaking because I'm so uh, excited that uh, His Holiness Mukunda Goswami is here with me today. Maharaj, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, so for those of you who don't know my listeners, um, Mukunda Goswami is probably the first devotee, that uh, the first person that Srila Prabhupada met in and who became a devotee in in, in the Western world uh, in New York in 1965. Uh, and it, He has an amazing history. He has amazing books. He has a website that's coming out very soon. Uh, he has a book, The Miracle on Second Avenue, which is a beautiful, beautiful book um, that I'd like to promote here today. But but Let's start off today, Maharaj, talking a little bit about how let, Let's talk uh, first before you even met Prabhupada. Tell us a little bit about your upbringing uh, very briefly, and then we can get into uh, how you met Srila Prabhupada.
1: Okay, well, it's, uh, it's not a very interesting upbringing. I, I, uh, my parents stayed together throughout uh, my life. Um, <clears throat> they were a Jewish family, and uh, I was a bit of a searcher. Um, I, I went to uh, uh, college and high school in, in, in the, the city of my birth, Portland, Oregon. And that's, and then, and then when, when I got to be about 24, that's, that's the time that I first started my devotional career.
0: Wow and and this the story goes that uh everyone knows you were you were a was walking and you asked him are you from india and he said are you from india or have you been to india tell us about that well it wasn't exactly
1: what happened uh, okay. i i first met him in a place called the loft and it was a it was a air setup which was only 50 dollars per month and it was on the it was in a place called the bowery bowery street in new york Bowery comes from the, the word bower, which is a sort of <clears throat> shelter place made of flowers and twigs and that sort of thing. So Bowery was a very fashionable place at, at one time, but then it turned out to be a, a slum, a skid row really of, of New York, of Manhattan. And that's where I met Prabhupada. Someone scrawled the, the address on a piece of paper and I thought, well, I'll just go and check it out. That's where I met him. That was the first meeting. What so, was your uh, yeah? Yeah, I'm... please continue. ahead. Well, uh, I thought I thought I thought it was kind of a unique situation because I had met some uh, swamis and met some Christian uh, priests and uh, Buddhist monks before, but I was kind of not very deeply impressed with them because they they didn't seem to have a lot of time for me and uh, they just disappeared and I couldn't. It was, it was kind of an impersonal uh, encounter. But when I met I saw that he was living at, at a very uh, old age, probably in his 60s or close to 70. And he didn't have a car. He didn't have a wife. He didn't have a business. He didn't have any income. Uh, he, he, he didn't have a house. He didn't have a place to work in. And I thought, I want to be like that. And it was just, you know, kind of a, that kind of, a, of an impression. I, 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 the first words I said to him were, I have a tambora. I didn't know what to say. I knew he was from India, but I didn't know what to say. And uh, that was that was the beginning. That's where I met him, in the, in the loft. And it was a very seedy kind of place. There, there were uh, naked rafters, unflatted ceiling, uh, full of spider webs, and and uh, just at the very end, and bare light bulbs some from the ceiling, there were uh, maybe two of them, and it was up on the fourth floor. And it was a very uh, uh, modest, to say the least, very... Uh, simple place. And I thought, well, maybe this is the real thing. I'm not unlike the uptown Swamis and Buddhists and, and they were in the upper part of Manhattan. This was down in the, the, the slum, the, 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 the bucket gut level. Uh, I think what they, they, they call gut level or or uh, bog level in New Zealand. It was
0: like that. That was the kind of, it was dingy, the dingy place. And what prompted you to continue to, to help him? Like, I know you, found him 26 second Avenue and you helped him different ways. What was that, that, you, that prompted you that, okay, I need to help this man, even though you didn't know him very well.
1: Well, like I said, I, 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 I wanted to be like him, but I didn't know what to do. I did find out that he had some books and I, I, I think it was in my second meeting in the loft, I, I, I got the books and I didn't have the money to, I think he was charging $15 and I only had $5 with me, but he gave them to me anyway. And I started reading the books and then I, because I had met him, the author, and I had, and I was reading the books continuously. I mean, even walking across the streets, oblivious to the traffic, I almost got killed a couple of times. Uh, and then I, I, then I Made up my mind. This, I've met the author. I've I've I, I've got the philosophy that I believe in. It's and I'm not. Uh, that's it. And I've found what I've been looking for. So that the, the combination of meeting him and reading his books was what convinced me that this is what I want to do with the rest of my life. Of wow. course, I wasn't a full-fledged missionary, and I didn't understand anything about a spiritual master at the time. But I thought philosophically and and personally, this is where I want to go. This is what
0: what I want to do with my life. Can you tell us a little bit about um, the moving into Twenty Six Second Avenue and kind of the impact that place had on uh, starting Krishna Conscious up Krishna Consciousness up in New York?
1: Well, that was the first place that even you know, remotely resembled a temple. It was a uh, it was probably about four or five blocks away from where he was in the Bowery, but it wasn't it wasn't a beautiful place, but many devotees pitched in they 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 um, they brought carpets and symbols and and musical instruments and and uh, it started to appeal to the local people a lot even though it was uh, kind of a, a, a it was formerly uh, a, a curio shop actually uh and and then it became it had a kind of eastern look to it and then and it had a big uh, a window in the front people could actually see inside and then uh, it had a lot of Powerful impact on people, but that occurred about uh, three or four months after I met Prabhupada, and he had to leave the the Bowery and go up. And I, i because I knew where the 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 newspaper, the Village Voice, came out, one of the newsstands where it first came out. This newspaper called the Village Voice. I was looking through the want ads one day, and I saw this place called Twenty Six Second Avenue, and I made an appointment with the uh, rental agent, and then Prabhupada came, and that was that was where it all started.
0: Wow, and then. Things started to explode uh, after we, you know, you started going out on public Sankirtan, Tompkins Square Park. And what what became your role in in that? Were you doing any managerial things, or you were was it very simple? How, what was the kind of the um uh the, the mood at the time?
1: Uh, well, I think the mood at the time was just to to uh, to see what what Prabhupada was doing and to do what he was doing that right. meant the singing and, and chanting and playing musical instruments that kind of thing and everything didn't explode at that time it was it was a very gradual uh evolution and, and i didn't even become i mean i that was in may of, of 1965 or 66 may of 1966 and then in november i asked Prabhupada if i could uh, what I should do. I mean, I didn't ask him like su- su- uh, uh, su- submissively what I should do. I-, I told him that I was heading for India. That was my ambition was to go to India and learn how to play Indian music because I was a bit of a musician. And, he's, and he said, as I was leaving, kind of, you know, over, over I-, I had my back to him, I was walking out the door and he said, well, while you're on the, cause I was gonna leave from the, from the West coast from San Francisco or Los Angeles. He said, while you're on the West coast, just try to start a temple. And I thought, well, OK, you know, I mean, I didn't, didn't take it very seriously, but it kept ringing in my ears. Just try to start a temple. And lo and behold, that's exactly what I did. I got to San Francisco. I met some friends of mine and uh, we decided to uh, meet up again shortly. I mean, the people I met were in Oregon, which is north of California, one state north. And for those who don't know. And uh, and so that's how it began. We decided to, to do a West Coast version of what was happening in, in the 26 Second Avenue. And and we and somehow or other found a, a storefront, and that storefront became a temple, and it looked just like the one in in 26 Second Avenue. It had that kind of a carpet. It had a it was a little larger, and uh, the rent was about the same. and And the the, the the sociologists say that was a very important period in in his history. It was a time when people were searching for reality, and there were a lot of you know uh, 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 alternative lifestyles. And uh, a lot of those people congregated into the temple because that was one of the one of the symbols of of a, of a theistic something that was different and something that gave peace of mind.
0: I, I I'm always amazed by that time in the world where the hippies and like you said, Hate Ashbury. When this time where people were frustrated, I, I feel sometimes I feel like. Will those times come again where people are frustrated and will take to Krishna consciousness the way that they did in the time of the 60s? Or is it that um, there are certain periods where people are just more ripe for Krishna consciousness?
1: Well, there's a lot of different opinions about that. I mean, a lot of people think that unless there's social collapse or economic collapse or or there's a world war or something like that, people aren't going to. Adopt that mood of of looking for an alternative lifestyle, and and in a way they're 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 very uh, correct because at that time people were just they were uh, the 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 world had gone a bit a bit strange for them, and as Prabhupada mentioned that his early followers were not impressed and they didn't want the same lifestyle their parents and their grandparents had led. They were searching, they were looking for something different, and because the United States is based upon uh, innovation and and immigration, they 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 felt that they could start something, you know, really really something new. Allen Ginsberg was was one as a poet who was championing the cause, and and Timothy Leary was a former Harvard professor who was championing the cause, and and so there was a mood of of, of change. Change was in, in the air, and uh, the the people thought that, that this is 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 the way to go. That the real the way to to advance. That, that was the mood of the haight Ashbury people, and later on, and that lasted for just a few years. This, this the, the Hate Ashbury Summer of Love was the culmination. It was called the Summer of Love, and some people wrote about it, called it the Summer of Drugs because people were uh, taking a lot of a lot of hallucinations, hallucinating drugs like LSD, and uh, that was becoming very popular. So. They they were looking for something, but they were they were they were materialists. They 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 uh, still wanted to have sense gratification. They didn't they weren't true missionaries as 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 I later on became, but uh, that was that was the mood of the time to uh, change to change things for the better. And and uh, drugs was was one of the and LSD was one of the ways to go, and it hadn't been yet made illegal completely, but
0: gradually it was. I notice when I read your biogra- uh you know, the, the the book that you read, uh, the, the book that you wrote and uh, all the other books uh, of the early days, I understand Srila Prabhupada's mood being very liberal. But as years go on and when I was a kid, I remember he, he came off by devotees as being very, uh, very conservative also in some ways and very kind of the way they wanted to express who Prabhupada was. Can you tell us a little bit about his I mean, he had to be liberal because he was dealing with a lot of very extremely new young people. Can you talk a little bit about his mood between liberal conservative? What was his what was his actual kind of, um, you know, the way he dealt with people?
1: Well, as you said, he was very liberal minded. Uh, when he was in in the Bowery, he talked about a love feast and i I wondered how how he came across that phrase "love feast because that was very much uh, hippie language love feast and uh lo and behold he had he held one it was on a sunday um, not not one of his regular preaching days and and he he stopped being the the uh, the, the uh, very serious sadhu and became a a host. A, a very a very affluent host, and he was personally dishing out the, the 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 food to people and and encouraging to eat eat more and more and more and more. So he he was very liberal, but when he spoke, and he usually had the Bhagavatam in front of him, the the Sanskrit version, the big book. I'd never seen a book that large, and and he quoted liberally from the the Sanskrit verses, and I thought, thought, and I could very. Uh, I had a very difficult time understanding him. I had a very difficult time because his, his Bengali accent was so thick and he wasn't really what you would call expert in the English language, but somehow the message was penetrating. And so his, his, there, was, there was two aspects. There was the very liberal Swami who was and very accessible Swami. And there was the, the uh, very rigid uh, person who said that the material world is, is hellish and it's, it's not proper and, and people are, are uh, you know, suffering and so on and so forth. And I thought, you know, that was very interesting. And and as time went on, he stopped being so accessible. He he was surrounded by many secretaries and and uh, bodyguards and people like that. So it was difficult. in, in as time went on, to uh, approach him, it wasn't like in the Bowery. It could just go any time of day and and uh, speak with him. And at one point, I'm, I'm going to mention this. I I, I I I couldn't. There was no buzzer, and it was on the fourth floor. So I, I did what New Yorkers do when when uh, there's no other way. I started throwing coins up to, to the fourth floor window. That's where he was, <laughs> on the fourth floor. And finally, after after hitting the window, fortunately, with a few times with some pennies, he stuck his head out the, the, the window on the fourth floor, and he raised his finger like this, as if to say, I'll be down, I'll be right there. And he went all the way down four flights of stairs to uh, let me in, and then it back up. And uh, that was one of the first that was my second meeting with him. I just went on an afternoon thinking, well, I'll, I'll just check it out, check him out and see what it's going to be like. And uh, he was just he had all the time
0: in the world to talk with me. Do you ever think do you ever think back on those times uh, and 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 think I, I was so familiar with this person who we've later found out? Was like this, you know, this world Acharya, Shaktivesh avatar. Like, do you have what is your feeling of how you dealt with him in the beginning? Well, my
1: uh, feeling of, of uh, the way I dealt with him in the beginning was based upon the fact that he was listening. He wasn't uh, uh, pontificating, he was just listening to stuff that he didn't necessarily love. But uh, I, I had a photograph of, of uh, Jawahar and I thought, well, here's a person that he couldn't possibly find fault with, and he did. And, and the same thing with the other people that I thought were very big heroes because they were Indian politicians. And he started shooting them down in a, in a very gentle way. I called him the master of euphemism because he had a very gentle way of saying things that were very blunt and very harsh sometimes, but uh, he listened. And, uh, and and I told him that he asked me what I did, and I told him I was a musician and that I played piano. And he said, "I can teach you to play the piano for Krishna." And I thought, "Well, that's not possible." I mean, I could I could understand flute, but not piano. And I I just wondered what what he meant. And it took me a long time to. And I was doing that. Like three years later, I found myself playing the piano for Krishna, but I didn't know I had no idea what he was talking about. It was one of the most mystifying things that he said to me, actually.
0: Wow. Well, let's go back to the, the history, 26 Second Avenue. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what happened uh, afterward, after 20, after everyone outgrew 26 Second Avenue, or maybe if you want to start before that? Uh,
1: yeah, I mo- mostly because I was not really around at that time. I went, uh, that was, he, he acquired the 26 Second Avenue in approximately May. And by November I was on my way to the well, West coast. But I, I, he was writing letters to me, and I, I realized that that it was not just an old man from India, but it, there was there was some something a movement actually was happening, and I, and Allen Ginsberg was coming, and he, and I thought, well, you know, big deal, he's a he's a famous poet of, of the Beat world, but they, that uh, they made a big deal out of it out of him, and he, and he actually helped Prabhupada get his uh, permanent uh, visa by by uh, contacting someone that was a uh, in. in in politics, and that was a big deal. Wow! So I realized after that it was beginning to explode. Even though I wasn't there, I mean I was far away in England. Uh, I re- and we had a different different idea, but things started to take off really. Uh, and at first, after they they were in Second Avenue, they 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 acquired a place across the street on Twenty Sixth Avenue, and then it, from then on it just grew and grew and grew.
0: When in the later years, did 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 people know? Did devotees know that you were one of the first devotees, and were you treated differently? No. Like like now, if if now if, if devotees are if Prabhupada disciples, they're treated you know like with very much respect because they were your Prabhupada disciples. But someone like you, who like even even before, like not in the first one of the first people who met him, were, were you treated differently?
1: I think so. I think I was treated almost like um, you know, a person who, who just walked in off the street who didn't know any better. And uh, I, I was treated in a very liberal way, which I, which I, I mean, he was listening to, to my talk, which wasn't very spiritual, but, but he, it was very different. And, and what's happened in, in more recent times is I th- think people want to hear what Prabhupada was actually like. In, yes. in in those liberal days in the Berkeley, yes. and and so I started, uh, and I started thinking about those those days and those things. But at the time, I didn't think anything of it. I was just kind of like, oh, that's interesting. I think this is a good path for me to follow, and I didn't think it was ever going to amount to anything. I just uh, thought, well, it's 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 perfect for me, but I don't know what's what it is for other people.
0: Right, and and right. went after the movement was spread in California. Is that where you were based after, like in the later years, like in the late seventies, and like and, and at that time?
1: Well, uh, by by the late seventies, the movement had grown so large that I was uh, in and I was in uh, Washington D.C. And I was going back and forth between England and the uh, United States, back and forth. And uh, you know, it, it had a certain glamour to it, but you know that uh, wore off in time. Anyways, I'm 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 probably going to have to end the broadcast now, but uh... Sure. I'm 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 happy to talk sure. about
0: about life uh, in the early days before 26th, Second Avenue, even
1: or how it was we uh, acquired and, and so on and so forth.
0: Yes, we can do that uh, in our next in our next one. I can uh, I can frame the questions around that if you'd like. Very good, Navaras. Thank you so much Great. for inviting me. Thank Adi you much. I'm I'm very happy. Yeah. Um, what 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 kind of frequency do, would you like to do? Like when would you like to continue? Uh, one every, uh, for initially one, every couple of weeks, something like that,
1: every fortnight or every, uh, every two weeks. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah. So
0: I'll schedule awesome? it with, um, I'll schedule it with, um, that, uh, Mataji who I was doing, I think her name was Emma. Uh, right. I'll, I'll schedule it with her and I'll talk to her and then we'll do maybe two or three more and then I'll piece them together and we can, I can, uh, put it all, put it out live. Very good. I'm looking forward to that. Thank you. Yes. Thank you so much, Maharaj. I I really appreciate it. Thank you. Okay. Hare Krishna. Okay, Maharaj. Thank you uh, again for joining me here. Uh, Here's another session with uh, His Holiness Mukunda Goswami. Maharaj, so you wanted to speak a little bit about uh, when you were in Los Angeles and um, Srila Prabhupada was uh, where exactly?
1: Uh, I was in London and Srila Prabhupada was in Los Angeles.
0: Oh, okay. Sorry. Yeah. Please go ahead.
1: Well, I'll tell you about the, uh, I, I feel wondering why I'm a little uh, sort of bundled up or rugged up, as they say in Australia. It's because it's, it's uh, winter and very and, and we're in the midst of a very cold spell. Anyway, uh, I, I'll tell about Prabhupada's first arrival in London, uh, that I was scouring the streets of, of, uh, of London for almost one year before Prabhupada actually came there. And I was looking for a temple. Every place that I saw had signs for rent or for for lease or something like that. But they were all very expensive and they wanted all the money up front. So in the drizzly, cold uh, winter of London, I just kept pounding the streets looking for the place and and I was not having any luck. Then uh, miraculously, one day, uh, Gurudas said that he met uh, a guy named uh, Cocking. and Cocking had been the uh, the superintendent of a building that Shamasunder had lived in in San Francisco, and uh, David Cocking told uh, Gurudas that he had a property. It wasn't his own property, but it was it was uh, uh in the in the care of an estate agent, and that we could move in straight away. And it was right in the central part of London, which was where I was looking. And I thought this is too good to be true. Well, in a way, it was because it uh, it wasn't exactly Cocking's place. It was in the hands of a real estate agent, and uh, the, the and we couldn't get a lease. What we did manage to obtain was an agreement between two lawyers, uh, Cocking's lawyer or his estate agent's lawyer, and uh, Goodman and Derrick, who at that time were were the the uh, the solicitors or the the lawyers for Harold Wilson, who was the then Prime Minister of England. <laughs> So the two of them had had this uh, agreement. It wasn't exactly at least, but it was like giving us the green light to go ahead and move in there. Uh, We didn't have planning permission, by the way. And that was another obstacle, which I'll talk about shortly. Uh, Anyway, the the, the lawyers thought, well, that's the best they can do. Just go ahead and move in and and do your best on getting planning permission. So the next obstacle was getting planning permission because the uh, borough of London, especially the borough of Camden, is, is very strict about that sort of thing. I think it's that way all over England. And uh, somehow we were in a very quiet street and just almost uh, um, in the geographical center of London on very place. And uh, most of the neighbors didn't want the uh, us to intervene because they liked their quiet life. They were only paying seven pounds a month for their council flats uh, on that street. and uh, <laughs> So it was very difficult. We had to approach them one at a time and, uh, and convince them that we were not going to do any harm to the neighborhood. We weren't going to make any loud noise, which is not tr- exactly true. But anyway, we did get temporary planning permission. The, the uh, Londoners have a very, a very uh, careful way of, of di- giving you permission, but not giving you permission. So they gave us permission for three years as a tra- sort of a trial basis. And we moved in. And we had a big kirtan when we moved in, and they didn't like that at all. But it was too late because they'd already told us verbally that that, that we could move in, and then the council had already given us the temporary permission. And the place was called the Trinitarian Bible Society before we moved in, and we changed the name of, on the on the heading of the, the building to Radha Krishna Temple, and then we put a plaque on on in, in, uh, on on the front that said it was built by. Shamasundar Das Adhikari, by his, his great effort. And, and uh, we had a lot of materials, building materials, that we had imported from Los Angeles and San Francisco. And uh, Shamasundar was very artistically inclined, especially with woodwork. And he made the building, the temple room, look like an upside down arc. I mean, it was like uh, hard to explain, but that's, I mean, you've seen some pictures of it, but that's what it looked like. And then we, we got some Indian people to donate a carpet. And, and we were, after about two or three months, we were ready to roll. And Prabhupada was, was not, uh, I'll, I'll tell you about his arrival. He arrived in London on uh, September the 11th of 1968. And uh, when he arrived, one of the first things he said was, now one of you, meaning myself, Shamasundra and Gurdas, must go to Oxford. This was the one of the first things he said, and we had, we were just astonished because it took us almost a year before we could even see him. And the very first thing he said was, "You have to depart from this place and go to Oxford, because Oxford." And he went on and on about how important Oxford was in in the, in the world of the theater. Wow. And somehow uh, no, or other, we went there. Or I went there anyway, and uh, nothing really came of it. But although we found a very, a very uh, beautiful, formerly Catholic uh, church that was up for sale. And I told Prabhupada about it. And he said that we should try to get it, and, uh, but try to get them to donate it. So um, I went up there again and I saw the man who was in charge and he was wearing a suit. He didn't look like a clergyman in, in, any, in any way. And as soon as he said, well, how much are you, do you want to pay? And I said, well, I kind of thought that you might consider donating it. He, he just went blank and uh, in other words get out of my face as fast as you can and that was that, that was that so that was Prabhupada's first arrival and when he arrived uh, on the, on the, that date it was just a few days after apple had released the Radhakrishna krishna temple as a single 45 record and it very quickly rose to the uh, number 11 in the uk charts and number 1 in some countries and uh, when prabhupada arrived he was uh, Treated to a place called the VIP, very important persons or very important people room of Heathrow Airport, and when he came down from the airplane, uh, he he uh, there was a, a customs official at the bottom of the uh, ramp that he was the stairs, a series of stairs, and uh, Prabhupada went through all the all the uh, formalities then and there, and it had been it was a drizzly rainy day, and devotees had rushed out to see Prabhupada, and some of them paid complete dandabats. And when they got up, they were smeared with, with black pebbles and black rain drops that had gone uh, on the tarmac. But uh, Prabhupada didn't seem to, to mind. He just kind of chuckled. And then it was a short walk to the VIP room. When Prabhupada came to the VIP room, he was immediately assaulted by the Fleet Street Boys. The Fleet Street Boys were the uh, Fleet Street is the place where all of the, not all of them, but most of the newspapers are located, Fleet Street. And these Fleet Street boys were mean-looking, uh, middle-aged men, and they were converging on Prabhupada like they really wanted to find out what it was all about. So one of them asked Prabhupada, what have you come here to teach? And uh, Prabhupada thought for a moment, and then he said, I've come to teach what you have all forgotten, and that is God. And, and for the first time, I, I saw these Fleet Street boys stunned. They didn't know what to say. They were just silent and gazing wow. at Prabhupada. And Prabhupada said, some of you are saying that God is dead. Some of you are saying there is no God. But I've come to teach there is God. And then he went on to lecture for about half an hour. And they were silent throughout the whole lecture, although they were snapping Photographs. And one of the uh, newspapers came out with a two-page spread. It was called the Daily Sketch. It's no longer in existence, but the Daily Sketch was a very popular newspaper in England at that time. It, it was part of what we call now, or what a lot of people call the gutter press. They're, they're really sleazy pictures of half-naked women and all that sort of thing. But they had a two-page spread of Srila Prabhupada. And it said on the very big letters at the top, enter A.C. Bhaktivedanta Swami Prabhupada. And Prabhupada liked the picture so much of him. It was was a picture article that he asked uh, one of his leading uh, painters to paint paint it, to paint a color picture of that black and white photograph. He really liked it. So from that VIP room at Heathrow Airport, he was whisked off to uh, John Lennon's estate. We were uh, staying in John Lennon's estate but in the mad rush of him getting into John Lennon's white colored Rolls Royce, uh, we failed to get in, into, the car with him. So he and the, and the chauffeur, uh, the two of them alone, a uh, road to John Lennon's estate and, and Prabhupada situated himself at the John Lennon's estate. Uh, so that's where we stayed. And then Prabhupada asked us, he said, what is this, this uh, record that, that I've heard about you recorded with the Beatles? And, uh, and uh, he asked us, "How well? What what's the 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 the, um, the significance of it? I mean, how many? For example, was it s- selling?" And we told him that it, well, yesterday it sold seventy thousand. And Prabhupada's eyes just lit up really wide, and he said, "Oh, very big business! That was just one day's sale, seventy thousand copies of one record." So he was impressed. Uh, but the devotees in Los Angeles, and then he went back to Los Angeles. He after he stayed there for about three weeks, and he was pushing us to get the temple ready for opening. And we had to open it on December. I think it was the seventeenth of December of that year, and uh, we were rushing and doing all kinds of things to get it ready for Prabhupada. And uh, we even uh, subletted a an apartment, which Prabhupada uh, made us cancel the agreement of because it was for a long time. It was for one year, and he said, "Let's just." not like let it be a month-to-month agreement. And somehow or other, the lady who subletted it to us agreed. I mean, I thought it was going to be an impossible task, but she agreed. So anyway, we were in London, and the devotees in Los Angeles, a prophet went to Los Angeles in December. I mean, he, he opened the temple, he installed the deities. He, uh, he was a very gracious host. Uh, and and we, the way we got the deities is a very interesting story. Uh, they were they were called Rana London Ishwara after they were installed, but they were they were very large deities. They were a yard high, three feet high, and uh, of white marble. And uh, the people who were donating them to us um, didn't want them didn't want us to have them because they said that one of them was slightly damaged. And it's a Hindu tradition that if a deity is even slightly damaged, that it has to be cast aside. It can't be put in any temple. But right. Prabhupada sort of overcame all that, and they, he had a discussion with the donors. This discussion was all conducted in Hindi, and so I didn't know a word of Hindi. I know a few words, but not very much. And, and there were about six devotees in the room, and none of them knew what was being said. But it was a kind of a serious conversation, and the deities were in the same room. With, they were covered up. They sort of had like sheets over their, their heads and their whole bodies. And then all of a sudden the conversation turned to a jovial conversation. Prabhupada was telling, apparently telling jokes and got, got these hostess, hosts to laugh. And then in the middle of, of, of the conversation, which was all in Hindi, he turned to the devotees and he said in English, um, Tamal Krishna, you can just see if, if Krishna is very heavy. You can take him out to the van. And, uh, and, and we, you know, we were just awestruck stunned that Prabhupada was asking us to take the deities which were, were they refused to give us and so Tamal Krishna dutifully picked up the deity and took him out to the van and the conversation resumed in a very jovial way in Hindi so he didn't know what was going on and then he said the same thing about Radha Rani and that's when it got a little serious again and they were saying in, in Hindi we could sort of figure out what they were saying that, that that deity was damaged and that she shouldn't be installed in the temple and uh and uh Prabhupada was saying to them in in Hindi, well, we can fix the, the damage that's been done. And then he said in English, and he turned to us, and he turned to Jamuna, who was in the room, we have a man. And then and then and then it went right back into a jovial conversation. And and Jamuna was was dumbstruck that he called her a man. And uh, and what he was saying was that we can we have a person who knows how to fix anything. And and so that was the the end of that conversation. And she took the deity out to the van, and uh, we drove away with the, with the deities. And the the uh, the donors were kind of awestruck; they didn't know what to think. It just happened so quickly. And uh, then, as we were driving back to the temple with Prabhupada in the front seat and someone else driving, he said that uh, he had talked with his bank manager. This was about ten minutes away from the from the host's house. He said that uh, that I had a plan. And I guess it was about borrowing money or something like that. And and the bank manager didn't want to do it. And then somehow or other, Prabhupada talked him into it, that he should get the loan. And then he told us, that the bank manager said to him, he said, Mr. Day, you should have been a politician. And Prabhupada was so delighted with himself. We could see that he was kind of chuckling. And it was a very similar thing that happened with the deities. They didn't want to give them to us, but Prabhupada talked them into it somehow or other. And it all happened so diplomatically and so quickly that it was too late. And those were the Radha Krishna, uh, Radha London deities that are still installed in in Soho Street. Right. Um, And Prabhupada very diplomatically asked me. What uh, what should be on the cover of of uh, uh, on the front cover of Srimad Bhagavatam? should be the London Londonishwar deities or the the uh, Rukmini Dwarkadish deities in in, in uh, New Dwarka, and uh, I diplomatically said, well, they're both very beautiful. I don't know. You that's your decision. So so he he uh, arranged that one uh, of the of the volumes had the the uh, the deities of of Rukmini Dwarkadish on them, and another volume had the the deities of <laughs> Rada Londonishwar on them. They were both the biggest deities ever, ever in movement at that time. Anyway, what I was going to say is that uh, the devotees in Los Angeles. Prabhupada went to Los Angeles in December, and we were—it was the last we saw Prabhupada, just disappearing down the the uh, gangway, sort of place to the to the airplane in Heathrow Airport. And we heard, on good authority, that the devotees in Los Angeles didn't want to play this record, although we'd sent it to them thinking that, well, this is a very big thing. We've made a recording with the Beatles, one of the most popular groups in the world. And uh, they refused to play it to Prabhupada. Their reasoning was this, that Govinda Manipur was led by a female. And, and that would be very uh, wrong to play such a thing for Prabhupada. Wow. So what occurred a little later, a few days later, uh, was that Prabhupada was in the temple uh, uh, being worshipped with Guru Puja. And he, at that time, he said to the devotees, what, what did they do in London? Did they make a record? I heard that it was a very popular record. And they said, yes, but, but you wouldn't probably like it because it's got a, a lady leading it. It was Jumuna. And the uh, prophet said, well, I want to hear it. And they said, well, we can't play it here because we don't have a turntable in this temple. But they did. They had one turntable. And they told him very reluctantly, that if they would play something on the turntable, it's going to come out through the very big loud speakers at the top of the temple in in the front where the deities are. And it's going to be so deafeningly loud that you probably won't like it. He said, that's all right. I just want to hear it. So then they, they, following Prabhupada's example, they put the record on the turntable and started to play. And all eyes were glued on Prabhupada. We were just watching him to see how he would react to it. It was the very first time it had ever been played for him and the first time he had ever heard it. And he didn't say a word, he just sat there on his san And then as as devotees watched, big tears started to stream down his cheeks. And then at the end of the song, he said, now this should be played in every temple, in every, in Iskon, every temple, in when we greet the deities. And that was the end of that. That was the end. And it was played in all the temples. And then uh, uh, a little bit later, a devotee that Prabhupada wrote a letter to had had said that, I don't think it's proper to play this song in the temple. I think my version is better. And he sent Prabhupada a copy of his version of Govinda Manipurusham Tamahambha Jami uh, with the first two or few verses of Bhagavad, uh, Brahma Samhita. And Prabhupada wrote back to him. And I have, I read that letter and it said that you have discovered something very interesting. But this is not ordinary music. It is... And Prabhupada used the word concert. It is concert. And it was concert in the sense that that uh, there were several violins, violas, a flute player, a harpist, uh, an organ, and a temp- uh, um, orchestral bells. Were, were, And it was arranged by a professional arranger. And it had a very kind of classical sound to it. But uh, unknown to many people, there was a, a kind of a rock and roll drum beat in the background. And that wasn't unknown, but it was you could hear it. And But Prabhupada liked it very much. And, and so he wrote to Jaya Sachinanda and he said, well, he said, you've discovered something very important, and, uh, but we're playing it here. And Prabhupada at that time was in Krishna Bala Ram Temple in, in Vrindavan. And he said, we're playing it here, so why not play it everywhere? And that was the end of the, his uh, correspondence with Jai Sachinanda. Jai Sachinanda was very mildly chastised that it's too late. You know, we, it's this. I mean, it's not only too late, but your your rendition is not nearly as good as as this concert. And in 1977, when Prabhupada is in London, just in, just before he passed away, he was telling devotees in in the car that that went from John Lennon's place to uh, Conway Hall, where he was lecturing. He said that uh, he liked that record very much, and uh, he he it was kind of the thing that he used to hum to himself because he really enjoyed it very much. So that's that story, and that that uh, it remains that that song is still played even today in, in temples all over the world, even though it's it's got a classical uh, um, uh, feeling to it, but it has a rock and roll beat to it. Anyway, Prabhupada liked it, so it's 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 been used. And uh, I recently wrote to uh, to George Harrison's uh, estate saying that uh, we know we played so many times. And, you know, there's a, a, an organization called the the, uh, the Recording Society, I, uh, the uh, uh, something, Performing Arts Recording Society, that's the name of it, Performing Arts Recording Society. And they log each time uh, a particular record is played. And uh, we thought that, and I wrote, wrote to her and I said, well, this is played in temples all over the world every day. And that amounts to, to millions of pounds or dollars and are, are we going to be fine? And and then we kind of came to the conclusion that we're not selling uh, this song; we're just playing it in in a in a, in a church or in a temple, and right. that was the end of that. <laughs> so that uh, became our success. Right. And anyway, I have more things to tell, but I'll I'll tell them in, in future.
0: Sure. Would you like to end? Would you like to end there, March?
1: I think so for this session. And then, and then what I'm going to do is tell some stories that I've heard that uh, a, a book distribution and various other things that happened even while I was in, in England is an event that occurred in 1976, around about October of 76. Um, there was a, a, a young devotee. Uh, we'll call her Lakshmi. That's not a real name, but I'm just, just taking precautions. And sure. uh she uh, she was betrothed to a guy named Narayan not that's not his real name but uh I'm just I'm just being careful anyway what i'm going to say actually happened i was sitting in my room and i, I got a, a telephone call from the head of the Los Angeles New York community named Indra that's not his real name but he was he's he knows about this cuz he's he was very uh conversant with this episode so he told me that uh, Lakshmi had been kidnapped. And it was all very strange to me because I didn't know what, uh, you know, I sort of knew what kidnapping was, but I didn't know what deprogramming was. And then he explained oh. to me a little bit about how she was uh, 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 kidnapped by deprogramming. So, what actually happened then, uh, shortly after that, I, I went with Indra and we drove to this person's, uh, Lakshmi's parents' home in Arcadia, which is near Pasadena, California. It's about a one-hour drive from the Los Angeles temple. And uh, and uh, when we got there, the house was dark, and we didn't know what to do because it was the actual address of the appearance. So what actually happened, we found out later, was that uh, be- before we got there, um, this lady named, uh, 18-year-old named Lakshmi, went to the door, and uh, she, well, first first of all, I'll go back a little bit. She phoned me. I was in in the New Dwaraka Temple area, and uh, this Lakshmi phoned me, and she said that that uh, she was told by her mother that her grandmother was ill, and that she should come immediately. And but she suspected that that there might be something wrong with with uh, going back to her parental home, so she asked me what I thought, and my uh, uh, advice to her was, well, as long as you're staying with your your partner, Ryan. There there shouldn't be any problem. The two of you just have to stay together and not uh, separate under any conditions. So what actually happened was she went to her home and her mother came to the door. She went to her home with her, her, her uh fiance, La, um uh narayan, and uh, the the mother of uh, her mother said uh to to Narayan, well I just uh, and she she uh, cried some tears, I guess we could call them alligator tears, they weren't real tears of, of uh, grief. But she said to Narayan, she said, I just want to talk with my daughter alone for a few minutes, do you mind if I, if I do that privately? So they, they kind of reluctantly agreed, although it wasn't what I advised them to do, I said they should stay together under any circumstances. But he reluctantly went down to his automobile and uh and then and he didn't see and then she kind of vanished inside the door and he didn't see what had happened so he came to the front door and, and knocked and nobody answered so what actually happened was as she uh as uh Lakshmi entered the house they grabbed her and and uh and uh, she was able to talk and she said well, where is granny and uh, they still didn't say anything and her grandmother wasn't even there and what they did they they went out to the, the back of the house and her sister and her sister's husband uh, uh, uh spirited her in, spirited her into a car uh, like a it was kind of like a van actually and uh, they drove north to a place called Calistoga California which is about 700 kilometers about 500 miles uh to the north of of uh, of Pasadena and their uh, parents had hired two uh, ladies uh w- women who were deprogrammed professional, if you could call them that, professional deprogrammers from Pennsylvania. And they had uh, paid for their flights and and paid for their fees to come all the way to California from Pennsylvania, which is a long journey. It's it's about uh, 5,000 kilometers away. But uh, that's what happened. We didn't know this, though. We just saw saw that uh, the house was dark when we came. We didn't all know this until later on. She told us what had happened. So we went to the house, and it was completely dark. And uh, I went with Indra, and the two of us waited and waited. And then, after after uh, an hour or two, the uh, the house remained dark. So we phoned. We went to a phone booth because those were in the days before there was such a thing as cell phones and internet and all that. So um, we we uh, contacted someone. We went one at a time in a telephone uh, booth. And said that uh, that they should come out in another vehicle and and keep a, a watch on the house. So they they came and we we left. So they kept a, a watch on the dark house. So then we thought to ourselves, well, we should do something. We can't just let this thing go on. This this girl disappeared from our community, and uh, what should we do? So we thought. I, I I had the idea that we should go to the Los Angeles Times. It was a it was a Saturday night, so it was kind of like. You know, very everything was shut and dark and closed, including the LA Times. So we went into the LA Times and they had a kind of underground parking, and uh, there was one man in a kind of a booth or a kiosk that was the the sort of night guard. And we we told him there had been a, a a serious kidnapping and he didn't know what to think of it. He just kind of shook his head and he said, "Well, there's nobody here. I mean, everyone's gone home for the evening. And and uh, but you you can go up and have a look for yourselves." So we took the elevator up to about the third or fourth floor. I don't know what floor it was on, but uh, when we got to this uh, floor, we saw there were about a hundred desks and they were all empty. All of them were empty except for one. And this one um, desk had a, one man sitting at it. So we thought, okay, well, we'll just tell him the story and see if, see if uh, he's at all interested. So we sat down in front of him and uh, we introduced ourselves. And he introduced himself and it just so happened that he knew the person who was our, who was acting as our lawyer. They knew on, they knew each other on a first name basis. They'd been in law school together. So that, that sort of softened the whole thing. And uh, then we told him the story and, and he was kind of like incredulous that this had happened, that this girl disappeared into, and then the house was completely dark. And, uh, and he said, well, I'm going, to, I'm going to do something about this. I'm going to write something up for this newspaper. So that was Saturday night. And then, then we, were, we kind of left in good spirits because at least someone was listening to this story. Then the next morning, Sunday morning, at about mm, 9 o'clock in the morning, there was a, a BBT a conference, live conference, in a, in a very well-appointed suite that belonged to Indra. Anyway, this this uh conference turned out to be a, a a retelling of this story about this girl that had disappeared, this this 18-year-old Lakshmi that had disappeared from the community. And that became the the topic of conversation. Everything about books and distribution of books and printing of books was kind of set aside, and then we thought, well, let's let's do something. So we thought what to do, and the first thing we thought we should do is we should we should Stage some kind of a protest, maybe we could even have some kind of signs outside of the house, and we could parade up and down and Pasadena is a very conservative city, and we thought, well, before we do anything like that we, we we'd better phone our lawyer and it was Sunday morning, so everyone it was early and it was early for him anyway. It was at eight or nine o'clock, and somehow or other, we woke him up and he told us what we could do we We would parade we could parade up and down in front of the house. There was no sidewalk there there was just the grass ended on the on the curb and then after the curb there was the street but he said that we had a right a legal right to use the first uh, meter of, of grass right before the curb to parade up and down and 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 so um, armed with this knowledge we uh, ret- returned to the uh, to the conference and uh we uh Th- thought well, let's let's do this. Let's let's pray it up and down, and let's do it with signs so that everyone can see what it is. And so the whole conference turned into a, a bit of a, of, a, of a strategy plan to get this young girl back to the community. So uh, then we uh, summoned some people who were artistic, the artists. We, there was an art department at that time in in Los Angeles, New Dharka, and they made signs. That said things like um, um, Madonna's being persecuted for her religion and things like that, and, and about seven or eight people started went out to uh, Pasadena or Arcadia, California, that early morning and started parading up and down in front of the darkened house, and uh, the the uh, people that were they just gradually started waking up people in Arcadia. They were just amazed at these. Hare Krishnas were, were invading their neighborhood and parading up and down in front of a house. They didn't know anything about this. They just sort of knew the, the family a little bit. And then we just kept it up. And, we, and, and, and people drove by and, and shook their heads and they said, oh, these, these are fanatics or something. They didn't know what to think. Then after, after about four hours of parading up and down, a man came and he said, my name is Lieutenant Osler. I'm with the Pasadena Police Department. I used to work, uh, he's a, he, was, he said he's a detective. He said that he used to work in Boston, Massachusetts. And he was considered to be a very talented um, detective. But somehow or other, he didn't get along with the people in, in Boston. And so he, he took up and he moved to the West Coast, that's to California, and started working for the Pasadena police. And then we told him the story we told him about our movement and about the girl and how she she was asked to come to her uh, parental home to see her ailing grandmother and uh, and then and then he was very interested he said well i'm going to get to the bottom of this and then we knew that we had the interest of, of someone in the police department who was going to find out what was actually happening and uh, so he he decided he was going to take the case, and we felt very uh, exonerated and 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 so so very upbeat because at uh, last someone was listening to us. Um, and th- and then he advised us that we should, uh, along with our attorney, who we're, uh, our lawyer who who uh, we were in contact with at that time, said that we should go to the uh, Pasadena Police Department and file a written complaint. And it was not an easy thing to do on a Sunday morning to find paper and pencils to to write a written complaint. So we did it somehow or other. We wrote this this three or four page written complaint, handed it into the desk sergeant at the uh, police department, and uh, he reluctantly took it and said, well, Said so if 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 she was my daughter, I would uh, I, I I would have done the same thing. I mean, I would have had her disappear into the house and you know got her away from the cult or something like that. But anyway, he took the complaint and it was lodged and it was official. Then, was mm-hmm. exactly what the lawyer had advised us to do. So then we thought, well, we'll make this a real high-profile case. And what happened was that the guy who wrote this, this this story in the Los Angeles Times, his name was Michael Levitt. I think if I remember correctly, uh, it appeared on the front page of the Sunday morning Los Angeles Times with a photograph of people parading up and down with signs. And and he wrote a little story about about a woman, a young uh 18-year-old who had been removed from her community on the on the uh, strength that her mother said her ailing grandmother was needed to be attended to. And so it became a kind of cause celebrity. Uh, a, a very, a very high profile case. The next thing we did was we contacted a few of the television news people because we wanted to make this a very high profile case. The house has still remained dark after two or three days. We were just kind of mystified what had actually had happened. So one of the uh, ladies, um, women, who is a, 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 a sort of reporter for the news, got she kind of sympathized with her with us, because you know, they're both women. And uh, she went up to the house and knocked on the door. And the house was like, and then by 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 this time it was Tuesday or something. It was like two or three days later and no one came to the door. No one answered. And the television cameras were whirring, taking up and then and then she told that that this is a very mysterious case. Here I am knocking on the house. Nobody is knocking on the door. Nobody is answering. And uh, we don't know where this lady is. We have no idea where this uh, 18-year-old woman is. So, what what was actually happening? We found out later is that the the, uh, the parents had hired these two deprogrammer ladies from um, a place called Ardmore, Pennsylvania, to fly out to California and and make an make an attempt to get uh, Lakshmi to renounce her religion this was in the days of of, of deprogramming the, the the phenomenon of deprogramming had just begun and this was a very high profile case
0: what year was this march this was
1: 1976 october of 76 so what uh, lakshmi is a very intelligent lady girl and she convinced these deprogrammers that she was she was going to renounce her religion and, and that, that it was all wrong and that, that she, she, she made a big mistake and she pleaded with him. She said, I, I just have to get out of this house and clear my head and, and go for a walk in the forest because it was out in the country. It was kind of a rural place where they were. So as soon as she got over the hill, Lakshmi realized that she was uh, out of their vision. She began to run and ran and ran and ran until she got to a place where there was a road and the first thing she saw on the road was a police car. And she thought, uh-oh, the police know about all this. And they, they know that this deprogramming is being attempted. And I'm going to hide from them. So she dove into a ditch just below the road so she wouldn't be seen. But the police had had seen her already. It was too late. So then, then the police grabbed her and picked her up and put her in the car. And she told them the whole story. And they instead of being on the side of the parents and the deprogrammers were on her side. They listened to her and they, they thought, okay, well, we're gonna help you. And uh, the first thing they did was they they hired an airplane and the, the airplane flew her back to Los Angeles where she came from, to New Duarca. And then this was on the third or fourth day after this happened. And then uh, the word got got around in the community that Lakshmi was returning, it was at nighttime. And uh, a, a friend of ours, who was a kind of a, a, a videographer, filmed the whole thing of her getting out of the uh, out of this uh, this private airplane in the Los Angeles airport, and then getting driven back to the temple. And so it was a great victory. I mean, it, it was a really high-profile case. The the uh, television news had 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 uh, even filled the room that she lived in. Uh, you know, they, and, and uh, it became like, it became a a, a a very big cause. So then it was like a big victory that she had escaped and, and she had escaped the new programmers and she was back in the temple. So we had another meeting on Sunday uh, and we, we thought what to do. Uh, we have to continue to uh, to make this a high profile case. So the the conclusion of the meeting was that, they, that she and her fiance, Narayan, should actually get married and the marriage would take place in the temple and it would be done the next day. So fortunately, uh, Indra, had, um, who is a very resourceful person, uh, decorated the whole temple. And it was a law at that time in the United States that anyone who was authorized by a particular religion could sign a marriage certificate and it becomes a legal marriage. So they were married in the temple, and during that time, her brother-in-law, Lakshmi's brother-in-law, knew about this, that he, she had escaped, and and he came outside the temple and started harassing us, trying to make fun of the whole thing, but it didn't go anywhere. And, and, and it, he was kind of showing his real colors. We didn't know what had happened. And then, a few days later, there was a, a court case, a court hearing, um, uh, where the the uh, the uh, idea of the of the uh, of the legal legal um, wording was habeas corpus or the missing body, where is the missing body, and and her parents were summoned to that meeting to that courtroom, and and there were many uh, people from Scientology and 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 other cults that were they were crowding into this courtroom. It was it was completely jam packed. And the judge, whose name was Jerry Patt, started asking may, asking the parents many questions because they had they were required to take the witness stand. And most of the questions they answered, they said, I'm not uh, uh, going to say anything on the grounds that it might incriminate me. So th- when that kind of an answer issued forth from the mother and father, it kind of made them look guilty. And the judge kind of realized that the whole thing was just a ruse. It was, a, you know, th- they had... They had captured this this girl, uh, and, and and tried to get her away from the religion of her choice. And he was he was on her side. So then the the uh, the, the, the the final judgment was that we, well we at least we found the body we know where she is and uh, whether they're going to prosecute anyone is 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 not was not part of the jurisdiction of that court. So then uh, then the, the court was adjourned. The whole thing took about two hours, and the courtroom was just jam packed. And they wouldn't let anybody inside the courtroom who was from the media. There were television people, there were uh, newspaper people, all kinds of people waiting and waiting. And finally, Lakshmi and Orion went outside and uh, they announced that they they had gotten married. And it was it was uh, and I was outside the courtroom too. And it was kind of like being at, at in front of a, a on on a gridiron on a football field. Uh, the, there was just a big cra- they were crowding her and her husband, her husband Ryan, and, and, and uh, I was t- tripping over wires all the way to the elevator. We went from the courtroom to the elevator and they, they were trying to get as much news as they could, but they didn't get very much because it was kind of a short walk. And, they, and so that was that story. That went, and it, it was big news. It was in, the, in all the newspapers and several of the television news prints, and they, and they married. So that's that story. And that was a great victory. And uh, uh, I'm going to tell a little bit later on the, the uh, uh, what was uh, what I called the turning point in the deprogramming movement, but uh, that's the that's the the story of Lakshmi and Orion. Okay, I should give you a little background before this this incident that took place in in uh, at, at the beginning of 1978. There was a a, a, a weekly program on on CBS television that uh, was viewed by about at least 40 million people. Uh, it was called the Lou Grant Lou Grant Show. Oh yeah And yes. the Lou Grant Show, you you probably heard of it. It was I kind of like yeah, a, a, a parody of uh, the, the of the Los Angeles Times. They didn't call it the Los Angeles Times. They called it something else. But this this is a story about the editor of the of the newspaper's son joining the Hare Krishna movement. And then it's the, there's a whole uh, background story to this, which I'll tell you because I was involved and I know what happened. What happened was the, the star of the show, his name is, the actor, his name is Ed Asner. Ed Asner. I don't know if he's still alive. If he is, he's he's getting on in years now. Anyway, he, he in the series, it was a weekly, very popular weekly program in Los Angeles called the the uh, Lou Grant Show. I think it was broadcast throughout greater Los Angeles and other areas, but it was very popular. And he like died I last said, year, he did. He died last year at Asner. Yes. Anyway, he, he probably he lived a long time and he was a successful actor. But what happened in the in the uh, in the drama was. I'll, I'll first I'll tell you the story of the uh, what was broadcast, and then I'll give you a little background about who wrote it. Who wrote the episode? Um, what happens is the editor of the newspaper says that. Well, I have a problem with my son, but I don't want to exactly tell you. I want to show you what it is. So he says Ed Adner's is is saying. Well, okay, you can show me. So they go for a drive and uh, the editor of the newspaper says, that's my son. And he points to a group of Hare Krishna's chanting on the streets of Los Angeles. And that's, and then Ed Adner nods his head and says, oh, okay, now I understand. You don't like what your son is up to. He's got a shaved head and you know, he's chanting like, you know, like there's no tomorrow. So anyway, what happened? There's a devotee, a, a lady, not a devotee, a lady named Michelle Gallery. Who uh, wrote the uh, the screenplay for this for this episode? And it aired. It was in the first season of, of, of the Lou Grant show. It aired in uh, in uh, 1978 in February, and it was called Sept. Anyway, Michelle Gallery, she was, a, was kind of sympathetic to the Hare Krishnas, and it was this show represents kind of a turning point in the deprogramming movement because it was widely broadcast and it was watched by a lot of people. So Michelle Gallery wrote this screenplay, very favorable towards Harry Krishna's, and the Lou Grant people rejected it because they thought, well, they're a sect, they're, they're uh, weirdos, and we, we don't want to, to broadcast anything that's like this. So Michelle just thought that this was very unreasonable and very unkind. So what she did was she, she said, okay, I quit. I'm not gonna write any more episodes for the Lou Grant show. And that was in Los Angeles. So what she did, and they didn't know this, and I found out later on, what she did was she went away. She left Los Angeles and she went to Denver, Colorado, which is quite a ways away. It's about 2,700 kilometers away. It's kind of in the middle of the country. And she, uh, what she did when she uh, was uh, in isolation sort of thing, she rewrote the whole script. And, uh, and she was in contact with me. A little later on she got back to los angeles and she said okay uh if you like the script i've rewritten it now and i think you're going to like it i'll rejoin this uh I'll, I'll if you'll have me back i will uh, rejoin the lou grant program so they read the script and they said okay it, it looks okay and you made a lot of effort you rewrote it you came all the way from Den you went all the way to denver and you came all the way back and uh we we are uh, going to accept it but michelle was kind of a, a very a very uh, new age kind of person and very sympathetic towards Hare Krishnas. So she started to get in contact with me and she wanted me to look at her writing to see if if I thought it was okay, if it was legitimately Hare Krishna. So the first thing she did was she asked us if we knew a devotee actor uh, who, who could play the part of the, the one that she called Vishnu Das. And it turned out that he wasn't quite a good enough actor. So they got a professional actor to shave his head, and one of the interesting things that happened was that they filmed in the Los Angeles New Dwarka Temple, and they paid the temple five thousand dollars for doing it. What was really interesting was during their break, we saw the main actor, who was called Vishnu Das. That was what they called him. Um, he was sitting out on the stairs of the of the New Dwarka Temple, smoking a cigarette with a shaved head. <laughs> And we thought that that is really bizarre, guy with a shaved head smoking a cigarette. But you know, he was a good actor. So anyway, to uh, to move along with the story, she sent the script to me, and she wanted me to to you know give my input. And I told her I liked it, and uh, but uh, there were some, a few things I wanted to to add to make it really more authentic, and she liked that. So I I went to the home of a devotee who had some experience in the in the film industry. And he was very sick. Uh, I had to almost wake him up from a feverish condition, and uh, I, I consulted with him about what I thought I should do to the script, how I should change it, and he gave some input from a professional point of view, from a uh, from a movie industry point of view. So then I, I gave it back to Michelle, and she liked the changes. But the deprogrammers were were very adamant that this should not be broadcast. They got wind of this whole thing, that the Lou Grant, the religion editor, was, was, uh, was going to speak very favorably about the Hare Krishnas. So they got wind of it. And as a result, they wrote to all the sponsors of the program, including Prudential Insurance, which you know, you may know, Prudential Insurance. It's a big yeah. insurance company. America. They wrote to the director of, of Prudential Insurance and several other big companies they were sponsoring the show. It was big money. And uh, so we didn't know if it was actually gonna be broadcast. They made a very strong case that if you broadcast this program, it's, it's, it's gonna go against uh, the Prudential Insurance Company. It's gonna go against the Lou Grant Show. It's gonna go against CBS, which was the uh, Columbia Broadcasting System was the, uh, the, the one of the big three. And there was ABC, CBS, and NBC. So we didn't know if it was going to be broadcast. Then what happened was the father of a devotee, we'll call him Indra. uh, He was then the the temple president of New Dwarka and the head of the BBT. Um, His father saw the program and it was actually broadcast just the way Michelle had written it. And because the father was in New York City, it was broadcast three hours earlier than when it would be broadcast in Los Angeles, because that's the way the networks seem to work. And he told this Indra, his, his son, he said, well, said, maybe, you know, if people watch this program, it's going to change their attitude towards you, towards the Hare Krishnas. This is unbelievable. So we didn't know right up to the, you know, till that moment in time, what was going to happen. So then we watched the program and the program was, was very, very favorable to the Hare Krishnas. It was also very unfavorable to the deprogrammers. It made the deprogrammers look like they were criminals. Which in a sense they were, but it really made them look bad, and uh, uh, Michelle was was exonerated, she was vindicated because she went away and she very very heart heart full uh, feltly very uh, very uh, uh, with her heart in, in what she was doing. She wanted to write something that would show that the Hare Krishnas were not only harmless but they were beneficial for society. and that's the way the program came off. So this marked a, a turning point. For the programming movement in the in the United States, where it was pretty, uh, where it all started, it started in uh, the San Diego area in California. And after this program, things changed. At least they changed in that in that area. I think to this day, in that in that city in Los Angeles in Southern California, the the devotees have a very good reputation. Not very good, but not bad reputation. They think they know that they 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 produce good food. And they they sing very happily. They're they they they're very clean, and uh, they they they're friendly people, and they have they make good music. So that's that's lasted in all that time for about twenty or thirty years or forty years since that show was broadcast. And uh, so that happened. And and uh, I don't know if the actors Ed Asner or the people that the, the other actors in in the program were were. were uh, you know, uh, on board with it, with what happened. But they broadcast it exactly as she had, had written it. And it was a very wonderful broadcast. And it, like I said, it became the turning point, in that, at least in that area in California, for the deprogramming movement, which now has become almost invisible. It's, it's subsided to the degree where anything different is, is, uh, is accepted. At that time, anything different was not accepted. And they, they, they were very uh, violent and virulent to uh, against the uh, Hare Krishnas. So this was a, a very big turning point. It was such a well, big turning point that I took it upon myself to write a letter to the head of CBS, the, the chief executive officer of CBS television. And I figured, well, he gets dozens of these kinds of letters every day and he's not gonna write back to me. But he did write back and it was a very short letter. He said, I knew all along that uh, that there was a lot of opposition and he said, I know, I knew that they had written to my sponsors and the sponsors had written to me and I, I, I but I, I believe in freedom of expression. So I'm, I'm, I, I was very happy to broadcast this. So he wrote me a nice letter. I wish I had kept that letter because it was, it marked a very strong turning point in history.
0: What, what was anyway, the, attitude just- the devotees who were in that time, like yourself and others who you, you ultimately watched it? And what was the, was it, there was, there must've been a buzz around the whole thing.
1: There was, because this took place uh, a little after the incident where one of the devotee ladies, uh, we'll call her Lakshmi, was kidnapped by deprogrammers and, and succeeded right. in, in getting free from them by convincing the deprogrammers that she was deprogrammed, which she really wasn't. Right. But it, it still, there still lingered a kind of general hatred, a general dislike of, uh, or suspicion about the Hare Krishnas. So after this program, because it was very dramatic, it was, it was a piece of drama. It wasn't just a a, a documentary. It was a dramatic picture of of the Los Angeles Times editor changing his mind about, uh, you know, his son being Hare Krishna and thinking that there was actually a good thing instead of a bad thing. Instead of losing his son, he gained a a son who was a a proper Hare Krishna, a a proper spiritual person.
0: Hmm. Amazing. So
1: that's the story of the Lou Show, And that would that marked the turning point, I think, of the whole reprogramming movement, at least in Southern California. Great. It took a little longer for the rest of the world, but it's 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 a, died a, a very inglorious death.
0: Yeah. Uh, Maharaj, so I'd like to I guess this would be the end of our few parts that we've done, um, but maybe we can you can talk a little bit about your website that's being released.
1: Yeah my uh, website which was just inaugurated a couple of months ago is called outofthisworldstudios.com and uh, what what in the beginning i was telling some stories about my relationship with Prabhupada. but as time goes on i, I have started to tell sankirtan stories just interesting stories that actually happened things that actually happened to devotees why why they were distributing books or or leaving the movement or whatever and I want to uh, retell some of these stories on this podcast, um, the, on the late morning show, uh, in my own words, so that uh, they're kind of interesting stories. They really happen. They're not just stories. They're they're actually part of the history of the ISKCON movement. And I want to tell those stories in future, in in, in the very near future, because I I think that this it's very important that people should get to know about the the miracles that occurred during the. Uh, the the uh, beginnings of the Hari Krishna movement and and afterwards.
0: Thank you so much. Well, um, Maharaj, I'm I'm really indebted to you for for coming on the show and and you know we've done this a few times now and it's been really a pleasure speaking with you, and getting to know you a little bit more. Uh, and you know I was just you know sometimes when I would get a text from you, my wife would be like, "You're getting a text from Mukunda Goswami. Do you know who that?" like it's like unfathomable to us because you're such a like for a young person like me who is a devotee and, and an ISKCON member you're just like a uh you're just like a amazing historical personality so I really appreciate that uh you've been very but, kind and very generous
1: I'm not terribly young I've, I've just turned 80 years old but uh <laughs> what what I what... Experienced in my life in England and in Los Angeles and different places were were miraculous things that, that just don't mm-hmm. happen ordinarily. And I want to retell those because I think they are the things that people are going to remember throughout their mm-hmm.
0: life. So this out of the world's out of this worldstudios dot com. Are you going to be posting regularly on there about your dear, dear different? Well, right um...
1: now uh, it's being uh, posted on a weekly basis, but I, I hope to mm-hmm. increase it to. Uh, two or three times a week, or maybe even daily uh, as as uh-huh. it gets more uh, audience appreciation and i I want to open it up to comments as well but it's it 's only in its embryonic stages now it 's just beginning and as i' i 'm researching many interesting stories that actually happen i i 've got a little repertoire, not a huge repertoire, but about four or five interesting stories, and I hope to have about fifty of them ready to go okay.
0: Uh, I, I Mara, believe just-
1: in storytelling because before movies and before television, it was, it was the, the, uh, the form of entertainment that was most popular. And I think movies and television are the most popular forms of art these days. And I, I really appreciate that. And I, I know that, that uh, the industry has some downsides, but I think the upside is that, that there's a way for Krishna consciousness to, to spread very rapidly and very uh, fully around the world.
0: Yes. Maharaj, if you could just leave us with one thing for our listeners, all the devotees around the world listening to you, if you could leave us with something, a conclusion, a concluding statement, please.
1: Uh, I would uh, conclude by saying that Krishna consciousness is nothing short of a miracle. The fact that it has spread the way it has uh, against all odds, against all sorts of opposition, and it has become a worldwide household name Hari krishna and it's, it is truly a miracle so i, I think that uh, if if uh, if anyone wants to participate in a miracle now is the time
0: right thank you so much maraj again my basis to you please stay on the line maraj i'm just gonna um turn off the recording Hari krishna everyone thank you for listening